Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has a history. Like apes, pavements and falling. Or cars, stars and bars. Or tars, sailors, uh, merchant or royal navy. Pars, so the history of fatherhood or wars. Uh, which is uh, military history. I don't, I don't feel we've done enough wars. military history. Um, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of planks is in fact all about the French Revolution, dastardly deeds done at sea, the Reformation, of course, violence in Oxford in the early 1990s, and accidents. Oh, Ooh. it's, yeah, and go Or that the history of Charles Darwin is in fact about scribbling and doodles, enemies and rivalries, anticipated death, medals, wives, and pressed flowers. Mm. We have We have a humdinger coming to you because we were at Shrewsbury School last week and we had a tour around the Taylor Library with the archivist, which a veritable treasure trove of material. And Cromwell's head. Cromwell, Cromwell's, Cromwell's death mask. Yeah. Um, first editions of John Donne. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing was, place. And all yeah. sorts of Darwiniana. So we're going to be doing an unexpected history of Darwin. Um, we are. Coming up... Uh, very, very soon, which includes this interview. It's, it's good. I love planks. Planks is planks, good. Um, Walking the plank, I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, and was, that was least obvious. What made me, uh, made me think of derelict buildings, um, so boarded over windows, mm. and the way that buildings, you know, change uses, the way that, you know, things were one, once, once, were, once were important, no longer are so... I love that, the idea of things being boarded up. Accidents as well, and planks. Is hammering a nail through your hand as you're boarding uh, something up. Hammering a nail through, uh, swinging a plank at somebody, which mm. happened in Oxford when I was an undergraduate there, which is hence the uh, violence there. But also, um, this summer I was chatting to some builders uh, who happened to be working on our house, and uh, they were telling me all sorts of tales about... One, of, one that stuck in my memory was they the absence of planks on a scaffold. So somebody had decided that it would be a laugh to remove a plank from the second storey of a scaffold hmm. and somebody was carrying bricks up it and it was expecting the plank to be there and just fell right. and broke their crown. Ooh. And quite literally, broke quite literally, like, broke their head. Hmm. 
That's very shocking. It's very shocking. Planks are interesting because they've got to be straight, which means you need a big, tall tree. You can't have an oak. Oak's rubbish for planks. Is it? Well, for big planks. For planks on ships, you need like a pine. Small, small planks. You need a pine. You need a, a very, very tall tree, which means the best place to get planks in the world is around um, the Baltic. So that's why the Baltic was super, super important in the back in the day, James, when everyone was building ships out of wood. That and the fact that they were surrounded by water and needed to be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and luckily had had the uh, the woodwork to make it. Hey, planks! Yes. So get in touch with your plank stories. Yes. <laughs> I think that's really good. That's really made me laugh. Anyway, today the oh, man, no, the man, sorry, the, the man th- sitting opposite me is the Saint Benedict of historical brotherhood. Mm. It's the truly wonderful historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis. Oh, the man sitting opposite me, he he worships at the altar of history. He's a monk worshiping at the altar of history. <laughs> it is love there, brother Daybell. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if you if you haven't guessed it already, uh, today's episode is about the history, not simply of brothers, but also sisters. It is about siblings. It is. I'm excited about this. It's a classic uh, unexpected topic, isn't it? Because you, you initially go, oh, my goodness me, does that have a history? And it's, well, it's got a humdinger of a history. By Jove, does it. If you were to write a history of siblings, yeah. how would you start it? I'd start with William and Harry. That's very topical at the it moment. It is, isn't it? It's very topical. I hadn't thought of that. I've been, I've been slightly obsessed by the story. So I just, I mean, I haven't actually done this, but I would, off the top of my head I would do this. I would do it on sibling rivalry, competition, because the press have all, you know, blown this up, saying, oh, they've fallen out, they've fallen out, and it's so easy to drive a wedge between siblings, isn't it? Um, or to, you know, even a kind of an imaginary wedge. So I'd probably look at that and and people and siblings falling out very close. Um, and all you could do it so many different ways. And also, the in that respect, you could do the history of... Um, you could do, look at the history of the press manipulating situations, or not the press, or, or, or anyone manipulating a situation to cause brothers to fall out. So what, what, one of the ways of thinking about it is in terms of is, is literal siblings. So it's thinking about family and relationships and the nature of those and how they change over time and how that rivalry comes about. Whether well, what it means to be a brother or a sister. What it means to be a brother or sister and you have codes of honour and loyalty and... and Duties that are owed to um, between brother and sister, um, all of which uh, is a kind of like cultural norm that gets disrupted by rivalry and envy and jealousy. And you can look at the you can look at the structures of inheritance, um, which is something that I often do, being in the early modern period. Uh, and in in England, there was a system of primogeniture which basically meant that when a father died, everything went to the eldest male heir. Sure. Not, not all the time, but, but often, that, at common law, that was, the, that was the case. And then how that structured and impacted upon relationships. So you can look at, you can look at societies that only have primogeniture, yes. for example, yeah, and look at the way that they do things yeah. differently and how that yeah. changed. Yeah, and, and anyway, you could have a look at the pecking order of siblings. So what is the place of you know, second children or younger sons or brothers and sisters and have a look at the sort of, have a look at the differences in terms of gender and class and how that sort of is shaken up. See, we can think about, you know, quite literally looking at the historical family and historical... Yeah, I love the idea of two things there. One is that you've got um, 
a relationship between siblings and how that fits in a hierarchy of relationships. Is that supposed to be stronger? Is it legally stronger than your relationship with your father, the relationship with your cousins? How does that work? So yep. there's a, there's a yeah, kind yeah. of a perception of, of the strength of your relationship, but also a legal strength of your relationship. Um, and, and the emotional side of it. Yeah. And what do you get out of a relationship like that? Once, you, once, you've, once you've stopped being in the nuclear family, living under the same roof, and people move away and set up their own families... You know, how does that relationship change? How does it, you know, how does it, how does it maintain itself other than getting together at Christmas and weddings and funerals? You yeah. know, do you have that interaction? How does geography impact upon that? Yeah, and then there's, there's the favourite son or daughter, yes. the prodigal, and, um, but that you know that really affected things like, and if if they actually were. Uh, because they were going to inherit everything, yeah. primarily, and they would then have a, would be more likely to get more education, more likely to get more money, more like you know, it, it massively affects the yep. opportunities available. So if you're born the second sibling or the second son or whatever it is, the third or the fourth, then your ability to kind of advance in life suddenly becomes massively reduced. Yeah, and also, I mean, the other thing is, as always, there is this sort of gender dynamic going on here and a difference between brothers and sisters, so sons and daughters. You know, and, for, and in many societies, sons were, you know, pref culturally preferred by parents. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the 16th and 17th century. But also if we move on from, like, literal siblings and think about it on a method, or in a metaphorical sense yeah. and think about brotherhood and sisterhood and how that has been applied particularly brotherhood you know you think about i mean we started off both of us talking about monks and what is it about what is it about the use of language to describe a particular relationship between monks um or it's it often is in it's often in the army or military forces so band of brothers Brothers in arms. Um, for brothers in arms for example um and it's also it's also a political and ideological language so, um, you know, people who share the same kind of ideology are seeking solidarity with each other by calling them sisters or brothers. Yeah. So you see that we just reviewed the film, um, had a look at the film Seaberg, and prompted by that, and the, uh, the root of that was the Black Power movement, you know, and the the terminology of brother is, you know, to suggest a solidarity is is really key, and and sisterhood for the feminist movement. Yep. Is key and what does what does sisterhood mean? So where I'm going to start is with um, the 16th and 17th century, and in particular, what I'm going to start talking about is um, the difference between brothers and sisters, and the way in which boys and girls were treated very differently in the early modern period. And in particular, I want to start by talking about the education system, um, and this was a period when girls and boys were brought up incredibly differently. So boys would be educated for a particular sort of public role. Um, they would be um, governors, they would be politicians, they'd be public figures. And so they would be equipped with the kind of skills to enable them to do that. And at an elite level, and in schools and universities of the period, this was a classical education, Latin, Greek, uh, oratory, all those kind of skills that you'd need to be a sort of good uh, public figure. Um, girls, on the other hand, were educated within the household, basically to be good 
mothers and wives. And we can see this in a case study of Francis and Margaret Willoughby. Living in the 16th century, we know about them. Their parents died, they lived with their uncle, and this was a man who kept detailed household accounts. And so from a reading of this, these household accounts, you can piece together exactly how the two of them were educated, exactly how Francis was brought up. We know that Francis was brought ABC books in English. He was bought Latin grammars. He had a Hebrew grammar. He had a Greek grammar. He went to grammar school. He then went to Cambridge. He wrote different types of handwriting. His sister, on the other hand, was educated at home. She didn't receive this classical education, unlike uh, Princess Elizabeth, who becomes Elizabeth I, um, Lady Jane Grey, a smattering of other sort of exceptional women. Instead, her education was religious, so they bought her a Bible, her own book of common prayer. She did study French, and this was partly so that she could be um, a figure at court, and she entered the service of the Duchess of Suffolk and then Princess Elizabeth. She was in her her household. So there are very clear distinctions between the kind of the kind of education for these women and and their brothers. And I just want to read you a little extract here from this is from the uh, this is from the introduction to Margaret Moore's translation of Erasmus's treatise on the Paternoster in 1524. So Margaret Moore was a humanistically educated daughter of Thomas More, mm -hmm. the famous chancellor who was executed uh, by Henry VIII. And he, this was written in 1524, and it concerns what he sees as the suspicion of learned women. <laughs> I have heard many men put great doubt whether it should be expedient and requisite or not, a woman to have learning in books of Latin and Greek. And some utterly affirm that it is not only neither necessary nor profitable, but also very noisome and jeopardous. I love that, love that phrase. It's crazy, isn't it? Alleging for their opinion that the frail kind of woman, being inclined of their own courage unto vice and mutable at every novelty, if they should have skill in many things that be written in Latin and Greek tongue, compiled and made with great craft and eloquence, where the matter is haply sometime more sweet unto the ear than wholesome for the mind, it would of likelihood both inflame their stomachs a great deal, the more to that vice that men say they be too much given unto by their own nature already, and instruct them also with their subtlety and conveyance to set forward and accomplish their forward intent and purpose. In other words, receiving a classical education, being able to persuade and manipulate, is something that women would use against men. Hmm. So there we are, brothers and sisters treated very, very differently. And we also have evidence of, there's tons of evidence in correspondence and diaries about mothers and fathers wanting boys. Yeah. And we see this most clearly in the, the papers of the Catholic... There's a whole chapter of infanticide, family. isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's the, the emphasis on boys. The, the Catholic Blundell family um, in the 17th century, William Blundell, the father, has a series of children and is really, really sort of um, disgruntled when girls are born. Mm -hmm. His sixth daughter dies 
almost at birth. Um, and I mean, presumably he's just had so many kids by this point, but he he just marks her passing in a really perfunctory way, um, finding herself not so welcome in this world as a son, hmm. he says. His tenth daughter he refers to as the thing called Bridget. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? That is completely extraordinary. Um, and it's made me realise that there's there's a whole there's a history of the absence of siblings. Yes, isn't there? Which we could, uh, we could easily explore. Yes, um, of course, with the China's one child policy, you know, implemented in the 1980s to limit most Chinese families to one child each. I've only just realised this, but that means there are there are whole generations of people being brought up without siblings. Yeah. Other end of the scale, you can look at the history of people who've got. Um, enormous numbers of siblings, um, whether it's because they've been brought up Catholic, um, you know, in certain parts of the world where, um, you know, where contraception, oh, the access to it, the ability for it, you know, for it to actually work effectively and safely. Mm. So there is a um, fascinating history of the numbers of siblings. This yes. is why I like this podcast, I know, James. It makes, it makes you think. I, w- I, was, I, I, <laughs> I, I want to write a book I, on I, siblings. I grew up with a younger sister. And we we still have a very good relationship and always have had. But I think I think the two of us are the two of us are really different. And I think you know I think there you know there's something about the sort of domestic politics of our relationship that I think vying with each other and competing with each other, you know, is 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 kind of interesting. And thinking about that in a historical sense, yeah. I wish I'd been brought up in a big family. All oh, right. With lots of lots of brothers lots of siblings. And sisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're a very social person, fun. though, aren't you? I mean, you like being surrounded by people all the time. Well, my wife had three elder brothers, hmm. and and it just seemed like their house was always busy, full of noise, people coming through. When she was born, she was born at home, and on the day of her birth, they kidnapped her. Uh, and took her down the garden as pirate. I know, I know you wow. imagine this happening. They basically took the Moses basket and walked out of the house. <laughs> like, Aged sort of nine, seven and five. Yeah, that's yeah. extraordinary. It, there is the fascinating thing about um, being a parent of siblings as well. There's, you'd yes. be able to, you must be able to study that through a historical lens. Oh, God, yes. Because I yes. have two kids, you have two kids. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's different. You have two daughters. I have a daughter and a son. Um, and the relationships is obviously going to be different. Per- parenting a relationship between girls is going to be different than parenting relationship between girls and boys or parenting relationship with boys. Well, I've been reading The Ties That Bind, Siblings, Family and Society in Early Modern England by Bernard Cap. Yeah. A lot of these ideas are all explored there. It came out in just a couple of years ago, 2018. You should all rush to get a copy of this. Brilliant, and it and it explores all of those things. In particular, it's interested in well, it's interested in all sorts of social classes, but it's interested in that sort of perennial problem about how these family members helped each other hmm. during the sort of trib- trials and tribulations and dilemmas of family life. Where are you going with this next? Westminster Abbey. Westminster, excellent, excellent, very ceremonial. I like all the tombs. Yes, oh, I love the tombs. They're amazing. I love the tombs. In particular, if you walk in the West Door, notice on the left the huge naval tomb um, to a captain at the glorious 1st of June who's got a tomb that's almost bigger than Nelson's and it's much more prominent. Really interesting. The physical geography of tomb placement, I would mm. like to do. So I'm talking about a tomb in Westminster, oh. but I don't know where it is. I've just realised that. Hmm. Um, it is the tomb for the princes in the tower. Oh, yes. Those famous uh, prince brothers, Edward V, 
uh, King of England. He was uh, and Richard, Duke of York, Richard of Shrewsbury, mm. um, only sons of Edward the Fourth and Elizabeth Woodville. Um, very famously, uh, their dad Eddie, Eddie Number Four, dies in fourteen eighty three. Their uncle, the Lord Protector, is Richard, Duke of Gloucester, um, and the kids they disappear before Edward V is is crowned. This is one of the most contested topics in history. Yep. Are you going to are you going to venture a toe into that? No, not at all. No, no. I, boiling I, hot water. I'm just going to be talking a little bit about one very very specific aspect of it, and that's the identity of them from oh. an archaeological perspective. Oh. Okay. Um, because there are that, that's an entire there's, there's an entire history of this of which that is just one chapter. Um, so it's people trying to find out where legitimate lines of succession have gone, how you prove it, and what what it's worth doing. So the thing to realise about the uh, there there is an urn designed by Sir Christopher Wren, which is interesting. So what's a 17th century architect doing designing a tomb for some 15th century princes? Well, the answer is that the bones of two children were found in a box under a staircase in the Tower of London in 1674, under the reign of Charles II. We're going to come mm. back to this. Mm. It's, it's the most important bit of the story, and it's one that everyone ignores. Purportedly being uh, the bones of these two princes, the disappeared princes. Um, so I'm not going to talk about whether they were murdered by Richard or whatever happened. That's all, all for another day. They were put in an urn in Westminster Abbey. And on the front of the urn, it has a fantastic inscription. Here lie the relics of Edward V, King of England, and Richard, Duke of York. These brothers, being confined in the Tower of London, and there stifled with pillows, were privately and meanly buried by the order of their perfidious uncle, Richard the Usurper, whose bones long inquired after and wished for after 191 years in the rubbish of the stairs. Bracket, those lately leading to the Chapel of the White Tower were on the 17th day of July 1674 by undoubted proofs discovered being buried deep in that place. Charles II, a most compassionate prince, pitying their severe fate, ordered these unhappy princes to be laid among the monuments of their predecessors, dated 1678 in the 30th year of his reign. So what he said here is, here are the bones of these two princes. He's also said how they were killed, stifled with pillows. He's also blamed Richard, thereby laying a foundation stone for, for myths we're still battling today. Yes. Uh, the confidence of it's amazing. The story goes on. These bones were examined four times. Hmm. 1933, hmm. 1955, 1978 and 1981. The original one by Dr George Northcroft, who's a president of the British Dental Association, and Professor William Wright, who was a very famous anatomist at the time. They were extremely confident with what they were dealing, and they swallowed this hook, line and sinker. Um, and they, they, they studied the bones. They said, OK, they are bones of children roughly the same age and everything. But the explanation and the exploration of it was fundamentally based on the assumption that they were the princes. At no stage did they question it. Then, in the 50s, in the 70s, in the 80s, argument <laughs> starts to properly unravel, where people of all different um, uh, um, specialism are getting involved. And I found a quote about this in a recent history book about the Prince of the Tower. There was much disagreement among the experts, comma, which is not at all surprising, con considering the nature of professional academics. 
Wow. So that's someone who obviously doesn't want a special story ruined. This has all become quite interesting since they found Richard under the car park. Because they've now got Richard's DNA. Okay, um, and they've also, someone has actually also found out a DNA of the princes via another route. And the opera singer, Elizabeth Roberts, who was the um, soprano who lit the flame at the 2012 London Olympics, is a direct for female line descendant of the princes. Point is that if we did open the urn and got the bones out again... Why not? It's happened five times already. Um, we can prove if it's with the Princess in the Tower. So this has caused complete chaos. Has it been done, or, I, or are you asking No, 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 no. no. Well, they, it, basically, the Queen yeah. has been repeatedly asked for, as well as the people in charge of Westminster Abbey, and they've all repeatedly said no. No, well... You can't do it, you're not allowed to. Um, but the explanation of why you can't is slightly bothering me. Um, you're not allowed to because it might set a precedent testing historical theories leading to multiple royal disinternments. Um, fair enough, <laughs> but, you know, we might learn something yeah. in the process. Uh, there's an argument saying, well, if it's negative, if it's not the prince's, what do you do with the bones? Mm. Well, I mean, you leave them there because yeah, it, yeah. it says something about the history of the 17th century. They yes. put them there in the first yes. place. It doesn't ruin history. It doesn't remove history. It's like people believe that the only history of these bones is the prince's and what happened to them. Of course, it's not. There's layers and layers and layers of it, which is fascinating. And I'll come back to Charles II in a minute. The carbon dating will only tell us whether it's plus or minus 50 years. Mm. But the point is we can D DNA test them to find out exactly... Who, who they are. But one of the other defences to not do this, OK, so someone's saying we should not explore this, is this. Check this out. There are others buried in the Abbey whose identity is also somewhat uncertain, including Richard II, <laughs> which I love. So, hang on. There's loads of... I've got, I mean, we obviously know this, but there's loads of people in Westminster Abbey and everyone, they might not be the right people. But that's absolutely brilliant. It's completely fascinating. Yeah. And if that's actually the case, then there's all sorts of histories involved there. And we can find out, like, why do they bury someone else? What's going on yeah. here? Yeah. And so it mm. seems unbelievably ahistorical, this argument not to, not to actually explore what's going on. It's like the... It, all that matters to them is the identity of the princes, where, of course, yeah. that's not the point of it. What matters is historical investigation to allow us to understand yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the identity of these people is a... It's actually a complete byproduct of the process of what you're doing. Anyway, so I, I really enjoyed the kind of blind alleys that this goes down. Um, and another aspect of it as well, and that's something that has caused equal trouble, is the Romanovs. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. July 1918, yeah. the Romanovs are the Romanov family are murdered by a Bolshevik death squad. So that's Tsar Nicholas II, and his wife, four young daughters, and his son. They're all discovered in 1976. Okay, well, all of them apart from son and daughter discovered yes. in 1976. But that's kept quiet yep. until the fall of communism yep. in 1991, which which is in itself fascinating. Yep. Only then do they excavate them and actually find out what they are. Um, there's a huge round. People saying, oh, you can't prove it. It was Anyway, DNA testing has now proved that that actually was the Romanovs. But the son, Alexei, and one of his other daughters, they are not yeah. with the family. But they were discovered in yeah. um, uh, 2007. This is from a farmer um, who was part of an amateur history group exploring it. Uh, ex a, exploring a the Russian area. Farmer. Russian farmer yeah. doing his weekend annual hunt for the missing Romanovs. There was a crunching sound, he said yesterday. 
This means you've hit coal or bone. My friend Leonid and I started to dig. We found several bone fragments. The first was a piece of pelvis. We then discovered a fragment of skull. It had clearly come from a child. We shouted over to the archaeologists. They began an expert search. My heart leapt with joy. I knew immediately that this was the kind of thing that happens only once in a lifetime. I also felt satisfied. I knew the Romanov children would finally be reunite, reunited with the rest of their family. So they didn't just find... What they found, actually, were the bones of a 10 to 13-year-old boy, an 18 to 23-year-old woman, three bullets, the remains of a Japanese bottle of sulfuric acid, which had been poured over the body. So the bodies had been burned and covered in acid yeah, yeah. to make them disappear. And um, they surmised that they were... Um, they were indeed the Romanovs. But there was a big uh, debate with... Did the they Ru- do DNA the, tests on Yes, them? and that is now yeah. confirmed. Yeah, yeah. But at the yeah. time, the Russian Orthodox Church was like, you can't prove it's this. They had an invested yeah, interest yeah. in it not yeah. being yeah. them. It's all very complicated. But the point is, is that the, you know, the prince is in the tower. The interment of their bones, the debate about DNA testing them for the identity of it is actually surprisingly complicated when linked with really potent history, yeah. like what the hell happened to the Romanovs, yes. like wh- why the prince is in the tower, you know, from Edward IV to Richard III. Um, and that those examples, had there are other examples of that throughout history from all over the world. So there's yes. an entire kind of separate chapter on the complex identity of lost siblings... I'm going to go back to the um, 17th century again and talk about younger sons. Yep. And, um, and one of the things that we, you started off today talking about was this sense of rivalry between children, uh, between brothers in particular. And I think one of the things I'd like to explore is the plight of younger sons in a system in the 16th and 17th century when they didn't inherit, mm. and what happened to them. And I, and I want to start with a little quotation from uh, William Shakespeare, uh, one of our favourite playwrights. Um, and it's from as the, the play As You Like It. Um, and it's a speech by Orlando uh, in it, uh, and he sort of accuses his elder brother of basically not looking after him properly. "'My father charged you in his will to give me a good education,' You've trained me like a peasant, obscuring and hiding me from all gentlemanlike qualities. The spirit of my father grows strong in me, and I will no longer endure it. He's asserting two things. One is he's showing that as a younger son, he's being treated poorly by his by his brother. His brother doesn't really care for him. He's not educating him in, in a particular way. Um, but also, he, in saying that, he's also asserting what we were talking about earlier on, about this ideal nature of brotherhood, you know, that you should look out for. You know, there should be a sort of loving and supportive relationship between siblings as an ideal. And what we always, what we continually find throughout history is the way in which those ideals and those duties and those codes of how you should behave always get undercut by people's you know, desires and feelings and, and you know, and wanting to sort of buck that kind of trend. But what this does is it has set up a, historiographically, it's set up a, um, a particular line of interpretation that sees younger sons as downtrodden, as envious, as kept out of inheritance and, you know, and having a sort of boring life. 
um, over-educated to the extent that basically they become, they're seen as this disgruntled um, force who basically there aren't enough opportunities for them to make their own way in the world. So much so that the famous historian Joan Thirsk um, wrote the following. Um, A younger son meant an angry young man bearing more than his share of injustice and resentment, deprived of other means by his father and elder brother, often hanging around his elder brother's house as a servant, completely dependent on his grace and favour. So for years, this was the sort of dominant view. And then back in the... Back in the um, in the sort of late 80s, uh, the brilliant social historian Linda Pollock, uh, who's done some f- really fantastic work on the family and the nobility and gentry in the 16th and 17th century, published a small article called Younger Sons in Tudor and Stuart England. A really easy read. Uh, it's in History Today, uh, June 1989. And in it, she takes that um, that argument to task. And effectively, what she does is she shows that, yes, in some cases this did happen, but if you have a look at the family, the family is often seen as this sort of power unit. And in fact, your younger siblings, um, you have a responsibility for them. And also they are pretty useful for you. I'm sure we've talked about this before, the way in which, you know, as a family, it's rather like, you know, it brings us back to sort of William and Harry you know, which we started off with at the beginning, you know, basically what you have, they are almost sort of social, socio-political assets that can go out and work on your behalf. Um, and, in, and it was exactly the case in the 16th and 17th century. So actually, quite a lot of energies were poured into looking after the educations of younger sons, you know, setting them up in careers if you could, because they would be advantageous for you. And if you have a look at some of the... If you have a look family by family throughout the Tudor and Stuart period, you can actually see that there are coordinated attempts to set up the family in... family members in different parts of the government or church or military. You can also see this in relation to um, coordinated marriage strategies. So at a time when you're making arranged marriages. It's really interesting to have a look at a family like the family like the Winds of Gwydir, so this um this Welsh family in the seventeenth century, and we've got uh we've got a big cache of correspondence survives from there. You've got the father and the eldest male heir who are writing backwards and forwards to each other, discussing the other children's marriages. So we know a lot about the uh, marriage of the eldest male heir because he's discussing it with his father and he gets married, you know, a sort of high society uh, match uh, in London. Um, and then the younger sons are also able to take advantage of those connections mm-hmm. and marry well themselves. The daughters, the father seems to be much more sentimental and the daughters marry more locally, partly because he wants them... He wants them closer to home, which may suggest a a relationship between a father and daughters, but also the fact that they are being used to cement, you know, political relationships at a sort of lower level. There's a brilliant um, petition from a woman called Anne Newdigate, um, who, which I've got here, Anne Newdigate uh, is a a gentlewoman uh, writing in the early um, 17th century. Her husband dies. She's about to lose her children. 
or her, her eldest male heir because he's a ward of court. Uh, and what she does is she petitions. And it's one of those sort of... It's one of those really moving petitions. She describes, you know, nursing her children on her own breasts uh, at a time when women of her social background would use a wet nurse instead. So she, she's already bucking the trend. But she argues for her... She argues for the wardship of her son. And she says, For though the heir be my oldest son and dearest child... Having but one son more, yet the rest are all of the same breed, and I think there is a conscience they should have what their father left them. So there's a sense in which she doesn't actually distinguish between her children. She wants to look after them all, to set them all up. So there we are. Uh, we're, it's about negotiations. There. It's amazing. I like that. Anyway, if you follow the correspondence, yeah. you can see the sort of twos and fro's with the... Um, between siblings. And bucking trends. It's so important when you're talking about something like primogeniture to be clear that actually, just because there is an overwhelming system in a yes. country that yeah, works, yeah, yeah. That by no means do you, is it the case that everyone's doing no, it. No, absolutely. Yeah, which I love. So the, the idea of primogeniture, I think, was interesting, particularly in relation to people who have seized power, Yes, I thought. So uh, I just sat down and I j jotted down uh, Cromwell and I jotted down Napoleon huh. to see exactly how they <laughs> cope with it and what they did. Um, so this is Cromwell, who's uh, here we are. We've got the 1653 instrument of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell, 1653 yeah. instrument of government. So yeah, after the Civil War, they've executed Charles. Uh, the Protectorate uh, is um, created. Um, Cromwell becomes the um, guy in charge. 1653 instrument of government. Oliver Cromwell, Captain General of the Forces of England, Scotland and Ireland, shall be and is hereby declared to be Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland and Ireland, and the dominions thereto belonging for his life. OK, so it's a life thing. So this is what Napoleon does as well. and He becomes um, dictator and an emperor for life. And they party... I mean, it, the next stage then is you can choose who is going to succeed you. Um, in 1657, so this is after Cromwell's been made protector for life, the humble for petition and advice gave His Highness the Lord Protector the power to nominate his own successor. And then Oliver Cromwell nominates his son, Richard, who goes on to be um, less than useless. But interestingly, once that has all ended, they don't look for another Cromwell, they don't look for another brother or a sister of Richard, another son of Oliver to take, take power, and it goes back, uh, the, the monarchy is restored. Napoleon, oh, it's just another example which we can go into. I mean, the Napoleonic line of succession is fascinating because it's complete chaos. In principle, the law of succession, which is established in 1804 when Napoleon becomes emperor, provides that the throne is passed to his own legitimate male descendants through the male line in perpetuity to the complete exclusion of all women. Um, so he's made sure that that's yeah. never going to happen. Um, and it provides also that if Napoleon's own line dies out, the claim passes to his older brother, Joseph, and his legitimate male descendants through the male line, and if that doesn't work out, then to his younger brother, Louis. Uh, and it turns out that um, it's through Louis's Louis blood that um, it, it continues with Napoleon III in the end. So anyway, there was just two examples of how it was established, the moments in time. And you could do a really interesting comparative, I reckon, because I've always been fascinated in where Napoleon got all his ideas from. He's got a very clear idea of what he wants and how he does it. And mm. there's quite a lot of Roman stuff in there. I think he was reading a lot of Roman history. But I was wondering whether he knows what, what Cromwell did. Possibly. Mm. Possibly. I mean, and the instrument of government is an expedient. Why, once they've removed the monarchy, 
in order to allow them to buy time in order to set up the system. And I think in both cases, what you've got is the the new powers struggling to sort of work out how you replace a monarchical system. Yeah. And I think so. I've got one final small example, which brings us back to the band of brothers, or oh, bro- yeah. brothers in arms, um, and. You know, this is something that you can follow, you know, all the way through from classical times, um, all the way through to the Second World War, to conflicts today. And it is this sort of group or, or sort of fraternity of soldiers, you know, who are bound together by codes of honour and oaths of allegiance. Which, again, it's back to that ideal of brotherhood. Um, you can see it in that fantastic series, Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, the HBO special. But what I want to argue is that it has quite early origins. I think one of those origins is in those Germanic tribes around the time of the Roman Empire. Um, and it's the comitatus, which is one of the basic structures of any society um, in that period when we're looking at sort of German tribal society. And alongside it, you have you have you obviously have the family as an important unit, but the comitatus is a sort of war band. It's a group of warriors um, who owe their who are bound together and owe their loyalty to one sort of warlord. Um, and what I think is fascinating about it is the sort of military codes and honor that we see there. That really are the starting place for aristocratic military honour codes that we see throughout the, you know, throughout the sort of um, medieval period through to the sort of, to the modern day. And I think we see that kind of, we still see those those sort of ethics and moral codes very much at the heart of, of what, um, of, of the way in which modern forces operate at that sort of um, small band of brothers level. And we know a lot about the Comitatus from uh, the Roman historian uh, Tacitus in his Germania. And Tacitus was a Roman historian writing, um, living from um, around 56 AD to 120 AD. And he writes Germania in 98. Um, and he this is basically a description of the Germanic peoples living beyond the Rhine River. And his accounts are based on writings of previous geographers and historians, such as Pliny the Elder's Lost German Wars, interviews with people. So it's all sorts of material, first-hand knowledge, experience of the Germanic peoples. And he lays out a largely accurate um, account of what, of the living conditions of these people. Um, but what I think is striking for what I'm going to, what, what I'm arguing about, is a little passage called The Warlike Ardour of the People. And I think this su- this summarises some of these sort of uh, honour codes of military brotherhood. When they go into battle, it is a disgrace for the chief to be surpassed in valour a disgrace for his followers not to equal the valour of the tr- chief, and it is an infamy and a reproach for life to have survived the chief and returned from the field, to defend, to protect him, to ascribe one's own brave deeds to his renown is the height of loyalty. The chief fights for victory, his vassals fight for their chief. If their native state sinks into the sloth of prolonged peace and repose, 
many of its noble youths voluntarily seek those tribes which are waging some war, both because inaction is odious to their race and because they win renown more readily in the midst of peril and cannot maintain a numerous following except by violence and war. Indeed, men look to the liberality of their chief for their war horse and their blood-stained and victorious lance, feasts and entertainments which, though inelegant, are plentifully furnished, are their only pay. The means of this bounty comes from war and rapine, nor are they as easily persuaded to plough the earth and to wait for the year's produce as to challenge an enemy and earn the honour of wounds. Nay, they actually think it tame and stupid to acquire by the sweat of toil what they might win by their blood. So it's this kind of bond of loyalty. I mean, that, I mean it's also the sense that if the, if the chief dies on the battlefield, they do not want to leave alive. They will fight to the death. It's that kind of sense of loyalty, that sort of sense of brotherhood that binds them together. Very good. Very Isn't good. it good? And it's led to the creation of myths. So you should, um, everyone listen, if you're interested in that, listen to my um, bit in the uh, Trafalgar special we did, where I will tell you that uh, the whole Band of Brothers Nelson thing is, is fundamentally untrue. On the Excellent. basis that um, at Trafalgar, 11 of the 27 captains who sailed with Nelson had never sailed with him before. Top fact. Goodness me. Absolutely. Before we go, can I also give a quick shout out to a new friend of ours, Nick Kevin, uh, who is the editor of Inside History magazine. There's a new edition, uh, Crime and the Underworld, uh, which is out presently. Uh, and if you want to get hold of that, it is available from insidehistorymagazine.co.uk. And there's a wonderful um, advert for us touring show. That is right, we're on tour if you enjoy listening to the podcast and um, we've got two shows on tour, the original one which is a multi-period chaotic ramble through history and also a dedicated one on the Tudors we're going all over the country in the next few months. Anyway, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, do please hit us up on Twitter and check out historiesoftheunexpected.com where we've got an online magazine um, all sorts of things going now and so we'd, yeah, just get in touch and follow us. I'm yeah. at Dr Sam Willis. I am at James Daybell, and we are at Unexpected Pod. That's right. Uh, and one more thing before you go, guys. Uh, we have set up a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected, where we are um, raising money to buy some kit and to give this podcast the glamour and the gleam and the polish that we think it requires so we don't have to record it in my shed. We've already got 24 wonderful followers and thank you all so much for your support. Guys, thank you all so much for listening. Um, we've enjoyed it as ever. Cheerio. Bye, guys.